You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the Forum before we start the show. The Forum's 2020 Diversity Award nominations are now open. Do you know someone who leads by example and demonstrates a commitment to bold exploration, risk-taking, and learning from both failure and success? Or what about someone who has raised or raises awareness of workplace diversity and inclusion issues? Then nominate them for the Forum's 2020 Diversity Awards. More information at forumworkplaceinclusion.org slash diversity dash awards. Videos from our 2019 annual conference are now available on our website, forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Our 2019 conference video archive features general sessions, spotlight sessions, and special presentations from our 2019 annual conference, Bridging the Gap. Get amazing DEI content from our flagship annual conference for free at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Also, save the date for our 2020 annual conference, Facing Forward. This year's conference is March 10th, 11th, and 12th at the Minneapolis Convention Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Our three-day flagship event, the annual conference, is our premier learning opportunity at the cutting edge of diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape. Learn more about the conference, the conference theme, and the conference learning pillars at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. Registration for our October webinar is now open. Visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org and click on events and webinars for more information and to register. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion webinar series are free monthly webinars offering professional and organizational skill building opportunities in diversity, equity, and inclusion topics, featuring presenters from industries around the globe. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the Forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast, A Bridge Between Whiteness and Belonging, with presenter Dr. Jacqueline Batalora. As a transformational change agent, Dr. Batalora has both content and passion to equip, empower, and inspire. Dr. Batalora is a speaker, author, trainer, and consultant in workplace and educational inclusion. Her keynotes about the legal invention of the human category, white people, turn contemporary conceptions of race upside down and reorientate thinking about race and human divisions. She completed her law degree from the University of Toledo and came to Chicago to practice and has her PhD from Northwest University. In today's podcast, Dr. Batalora will cover the historical foundation of whiteness to help us learn a piece of U.S. history central to a human division that is a barrier to DNI in the workplace, understand both conceptually and with concrete historical evidence that race is in fact a social construct and draw links between the legal historical foundation and practices within the workplace. Without further ado, I would like to hand things over to Dr. Batlora. Thank you, Benjamin. All right, I'm going to jump right in with the historical foundational information. If we want to understand this process, this phenomenon called whiteness, we have to begin with the inventive moment when people called white people first emerged, at least as a matter of law. Um, and so in order to do that, we need to plant ourselves squarely within the 17th century, in the 1600s, in other words, 
within the British colonies of North America. And in particular, the colonies of Virginia and Maryland are of greatest importance for this purpose. So what do we know about these two colonies during this time period? Well, we know that um, both had an economy rooted in tobacco farming, was absolutely foundational to both of these colonies. And the other uh, similarity between these two um, was that they had an incredible gender imbalance, roughly eight to 12 men for every woman. Now, some people may think they're interested in going back in time because of this um, gender imbalance, but let me briefly describe the law that um, worked to shape relations between men and women. So it was the law of coverture derived from feudal England and was um, squarely rooted in British common law. The law of coverture, um, I think, is really aptly described by the famous English barrister called Barrister Blackstone. And he described coverture, which derives out of marriage, in this way. He said, in marriage, the two are made one, and the one is the man. And quite literally, as a matter of law, a woman had no presence recognizable within a court of law. And let me make that concrete for us. That meant a woman could not enter into a contract. She could not create her own will or trust. She didn't have a right to her own wages. And if she were sexually assaulted by um, a person who was not her husband, it was her husband who had the legal claim against the assailant. So just to give you a sense of, of the dramatic loss of uh, legal power that occurred via the law of coverture. So some of you now may be thinking, well, why the hell would anyone get married? Um, and so, which is, a, a, of course, an understandable question. But here's what we know. We know that the law of coverture that did constitute itself through marriage, um, it poured over into society generally. And so it influenced how women were treated, um, whether married or not. In other words, women were seen as incapable of entering into the kinds of transactions that truthfully were just needed for survival. So the results of the law of coverture is that women needed to be married to a man in order to complete the most basic of transactions required for survival. Um, the other thing to note about this time period um, is that this foundation of the colony of Maryland and Virginia, their, their economy being rooted in tobacco farming, meant that um, they needed a lot of laborers. The large plantation owners had a regular need to replenish their labor supply. And so let me explain that a little bit. The vast majority of the workers on the plantations during this time period, don't forget we're in the early 1600s, um, and uh, the, the majority of the workers were poor British men, the vast majority of the laborers. And so they came via a contract called a term of indenture. Term of indentures were ran anywhere from five to 14 years, typically. Um, and it, of course, was a contract with an end. So planters each year had workers who were um, had completed their term of indenture and now were free and um, they needed to replenish that labor supply. Uh, it, it was also not uncommon 
for indentured servants to die um, before the, um, completing their term of indenture. So large plantation owners had a regular need to replenish this labor supply um, in order for their tobacco to be um, farmed and, and cured and packed up uh, and brought to ships. So um, fortunately for large plantation owners, from 1600 until roughly 1660, England had a population boom. And so that meant that there were lots of people in England who were unable to feed themselves, uh, find uh, work to um, ensure they had housing for themselves and for their families. And so the King of England was pretty pleased to have these folks scooped up to be cleared out of workhouses. He, uh, the king even cleared out prisons for a time period and had these folks sent off, shipped off to work in the British colonies via a term of indenture. Um, so there were lots of available bodies, um, especially those of uh, young men who were brought over to labor in the tobacco fields. Now, one thing to note about these indentured uh, servants who were brought into these colonies is that they were not treated um, remotely similarly to the ways in which indentured servants in England were treated. Um, they were treated much, much more harshly. In fact, when visitors from England came over to the colonies of Maryland and Virginia, um, they communicated in letters back home that they were absolutely shocked at the ways in which British citizens were treated. Um, and we find from the historian, uh, the research of historian Edmund Morgan, um, that indentured and enslaved persons were sold and traded like cattle. Um, it literally, indentured servants would be pulled out of the guts of a ship um, in ropes, tied in ropes with a rope around their neck and displayed on the deck of the ship where they were purchased by plantation owners for their term of indenture. Um, and indentured servants in England were treated, again, much less harshly. And um, indentured servants, for example, in England could marry because they saw that as a way to produce the next generation of indentured servants, but not true in the colonies. And if a, um, an indentured female servant were unfortunate enough to become pregnant um, during her term of indenture, nine years were added on to her term and one to the man's. Of course, not all laborers came as indentured um, servants. Um, some were stolen boys, girls, mothers, fathers from their um, tribes in Central and um, Western Africa. And these people were kidnapped and forced into enslavement. Slavery was for life and neither British nor international law either restricted or prohibited it. The other thing to note about this particular time period is the, um, just the, the social structure that existed within these colonies. Um, if you could imagine, um, well, truthfully, it, it's really not unlike the economic disparity that exists today, where you have the 1% at the top with a, with a really long distance between that group, the 1% that holds the vast majority of the wealth, and then the 99%, most of whom have no wealth at all and some who have very little. 
Um, and so that was very much the economic structure of the colony of Maryland and Virginia at this time. In terms of those who made up the 99%, again, I want to highlight the fact that the vast, vast majority of them were poor British men, but there were also other Europeans, there were Africans, and there were the smallest number um, of members of Native tribes, because, of course, Native Americans had been um, severely limited in their number through um, germs and uh, almost a, a, I hate to call it a germ warfare, but when you look at the numbers, it sure looks like that. Um, and they were also um, killed in actual um, military type warfare with Europeans who um, perceived themselves as rightfully colonizing these lands um, and claiming them and their resources for themselves. Now this piece of information is often the most surprising to people as I share this information across the country, and it certainly was for me. And that is this, that persons of African descent and persons of European descent who worked on the same plantation were treated the same. There was no um, hierarchy upon the plantation. There were divisions, but the only divisions during, again, just during this time period, were between uh, men and women. So that was the breakdown upon a plantation. But it did not matter whether a, um, a person working on the plantation was from Africa or from England or from Portugal or from Holland. It just didn't matter. You don't see any evidence of those sorts of um, ethnic origins um, translating into different treatment on a plantation. So that to many of us um, is kind of new historical information. And again, the work of historian Edmund Morgan from the University of Chicago is particularly important for illuminating those insights. The other um, piece of information that most, uh, that I as well was quite surprised to learn, um, and as I speak to groups around the country and in around North America are surprised to learn, is that it was not uncommon during this time period for there to be free um, persons of African descent. And so that, that requires some explanation, right? Because we know that the, um, many of the first people of African descent who were forced um, into these colonies and forced into enslavement, um, it doesn't really match up. How did, how did it happen? And here's what the historical record reveals to us with regard to how these uh, persons of African descent who had been forced into slavery were able to realize freedom. The number one way in which that was accomplished was by having a side job that enabled them to purchase their own freedom and that of family members. It, it may be worth noting here that many of the persons of African descent um, within these colonies uh, had really quite a bit of knowledge about farming generally. And the other advantage that they had was that their bodies were relatively acclimated to the environment they were in. And compare that to the masses of those who were working in those colonies, uh, uh, i.e. poor British men, and who had you know, no farming skills whatsoever for the most part because most of them were from the cities. Um, and uh, in addition, 
just physiologically, they were um, very vulnerable to this very new, dramatically new environment that they, that they found themselves working within. So uh, the other way in which um, persons of African descent who were enslaved were able to realize freedom was actually through wills and trusts of plantation owners. So that was a, another route that we see in the historical record um, through which um, freedom was realized. And so here's the other piece of information. Um, in addition to the fact that it was not uncommon for there to be free people of African descent, um, we also know from the law at the time that all free men, whether free of indenture or enslavement, they faced the same opportunities in these colonies as a matter of law. So uh, again, like like I tried to concretize the law of coverture, let me try to concretize what this meant. It meant that free men of African descent could own um, enslaved persons of African descent or European indentured servants, and they did. We know that some um, held enslaved Africans, some held indentured Europeans. This meant that free men of African descent could vote, and they did. It meant that free men of African descent could marry a person of the opposite sex regardless of her nation of origin, and they did this with abandon. In fact, we, uh, the records reveal that in one county in Virginia, 50% of the free men were married uh, to European women, the vast majority of them British. And in a, um, a southern county in Virginia, the records reveal that three quarters of the children born were of uh, both African and European descent. So it's pretty clear that these were not at all uncommon. And don't forget the backdrop though, of the fact that women were just an incredibly rare commodity really <laughs> within these colonies. Again, roughly eight to 12 men for every woman. Now, the other important piece of information to hold on to is that while these marriages were not at all uncommon, we also know from the historical record that among the masses, among the 99%, these marriages were not viewed in a, in a negative way. In fact, we, I can't even find a piece of anecdotal evidence um, that suggests that among the community, these were viewed in a negative way. There was resistance to these marriages, but it did not come from the 99%. It came from the 1%. Um, specifically, we see in 1664, lawmakers in Maryland pass a law that make it, uh, that punish actually, and now I'm going to quote the law, English and other freeborn women who marry enslaved Negro men, end quote. So that's the language of the law. And this uh, punishment was not insignificant at all. In fact, the woman who entered into this marriage was enslaved for the duration of her husband's life, and then any children that they have um, are also enslaved. So pretty harsh consequences for entering into such a marriage. Now the other really important part of this law of 1664 is that uh, in the explanation for passing the law, the lawmakers reveal a number of really important things. They explain to us that these, these women who are entering into these marriages are, quote, 
are, are, are for, excuse me, are forgetful of their position as, as English women um, and forgetful of the fact that English are, quote, deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied, end quote. They go on to explain that the purpose of this law is to deter these, quote, shameful matches, unquote. Um, and however, what we find out is that quite the opposite is what takes place. And um, so we see that after this law is passed, that rates of these marriages um, increase rather than decrease. And of course, it's not too hard to understand why. If you're a plantation owner and uh, one of your indentured servants seeks to marry um, uh, one of your enslaved workers of African descent, well, what's going to happen? As soon as that happens, she becomes enslaved now. And uh, should they have children, each one of those children is now one of your slaves. So your property value goes up with each one of these marriages. And in particular, it goes up um, should they have children. And so that's exactly what happened. What we see after this law is that plantation owners actually um, encourage the marriages because it, it advanced their economic interests. And it's not until 1681 that lawmakers in Maryland um, amend the law to correct for this problem. And this time they get it right. Um, this time uh, they get it right because they punish anyone found to have encouraged the marriage. And furthermore, they impose the law, the amended law imposes a punishment on the person who performed the marriage rights in the first place. And so th this one actually had the desired results as expressed in 1664, which was to deter the marriages. This law of 1681 is particularly important though, because what we hear in the law is that marriages between, quote, English and other white women, um, blah, blah, blah. But that's the important language to remember, because remember in 1664, the language was English and other freeborn women. And so this amendment to the law in 1681 represents one of the first times we see in law a reference to a group of humanity called white people. Prior to this, of course, there were plenty of people with low levels of melanin in their skin, of course, but what we see in law is that they were referenced collectively um, as English and other Christians or as English and other freeborns, um, but certainly not as white people. In the criminal record, we see that people are referenced by their nation of origin, uh, the Dutchman, the Irish woman, for example. So the question becomes, of course, what um, can help us understand this emergence of an entirely new group of humanity? Because lawmakers are like the rest of us, and we tend not to engage in things that require energy and effort unless um, there is a purpose to be served um, and interest to be advanced. So I want to, before I get into that, I want to bring the colony of Virginia in here. Virginia passed their first law prohibiting white people from marrying uh, persons of African descent and members of native tribes in 1691. Um, and as you note from how I described their law, 
their law um, prohibited English or other white men or women from marrying a, a person of African descent or a member of a native tribe. Um, and so again, we, we want to look back to what happened before 1681 that might help us understand the emergence um, in law of this entirely new group of humanity called white people. The answer to that, what happened between 1664 and 1681, um, when we look at the history within those colonies, we see that the glaring and obvious answer is Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's be Rebellion began in 1676. It's named after the man um, who led it, called Nathaniel Bacon. Um, but before I talk about the rebellion more generally, let me just help to describe the, uh, the social changes that were underway that helped to give rise, sort of the seeds, really, of the rebellion, because it really was a, a perfect storm um, in many regards. So remember that population boom that I talked about in England that, that provided a ready supply of new laborers? Um, that ended roughly 1660-ish. And so plantation owners were absolutely panicked about how they're going to have the workers that they need um, to um, continue the, the growing and treatment of tobacco. So they began to do things like impose really harsh punishments on their indentured uh, laborers. And they also imposed really long extensions to one's term of indenture for relatively minor infractions. So the conditions that both indentured and enslaved people endured on plantations began to become much more harsh. The other thing that happened is that um, the king had given most of the good land to his friends. And so even those who were fortunate enough to acquire their freedom, if they were of African descent and, and uh, forced into slavery, or if they were lucky enough to complete their term of indenture and had some money to buy land, it was really hard to find good land. And then even if you could, tobacco prices dropped and taxes increased. So in many ways, it was this perfect storm. You had um, enslaved people of African descent who by virtue of that status uh, were unhappy, struggling uh, group of, of people. We had indentured servants who, who faced much harsher conditions. We had freed people um, and small farmers who were finding it increasingly difficult to compete with um, large plantations where they were bringing um, in a labor force that they increasingly did not have to pay at all. Um, and so these conditions really made it ripe for a, a rebellious atmosphere. And that's exactly what took place. Nathaniel Bacon absolutely exploited um, all of those disgruntled uh, Virginians and led a rebellion. The rebellion had two phases. The first was an absolute slaughter of uh, Native Americans. Nathaniel Bacon was angry because he believed that um, a few of his neighbor's European servants had been killed by Native Americans, and he was disgusted with Governor Berkeley for not responding violently. 
And so Nathaniel Bacon took things into his own hands and responded violently against both um, Native American tribes that were on a friendly basis with the Virginia colonists and those who viewed Europeans within uh, North America as um, hostile. And so uh, the first phase uh, was very much a slaughter of Native Americans. And the second phase focused upon the ruling elite. Um, because at the same time that these masses, that the 99% within the colony uh, were really struggling and facing much harsh, harsher conditions, there were some, i.e. the ruling elite, who were becoming very, very rich. Um, and so there was incredible resentment about the ill-begotten wealth of the few. And so the second phase of Bacon's Rebellion focused upon that. Now, it's um, really important for us to appreciate how uh, widespread the rebellion was and how long, this rebellion was not a, a short event. It lasted well over a year and it ultimately wasn't quashed or put down until um, England sent in troops. So this was a really significant event um, that, that uh, engulfed the colony for over a year. We know that other um, members of the ruling elite within the British colonies in North America, that they had their eye on this rebellion and that they um, experienced tremendous fear and anxiety and uncertainty because of it. Um, and the legal oversight authority in London had expressed um, serious concern about um, the Virginia colony at this point. Remember, it was a corporation, and so the shareholders were feeling incredibly insecure. But here's what we know, and we know this from the historical work of Theodore Allen. And Theodore Allen really digs into these letters going back and forth between the Legal Oversight Authority in England that was responsible for all the laws of the British colonies and the, the lawmakers in Virginia. And what he reveals to us is that in those written communications, the lawmakers in Virginia um, express to the folks in England that they have things under control and they let them know that they will be pursuing a divide and conquer strategy. And so here's what we see in the decades after Bacon's Rebellion. We see a slew of laws like it, that in and of itself is, is pretty remarkable. We see just these law after law after law after law getting passed. And what's particularly um, noteworthy about the laws is that we see within them the assertion of this entirely new group of humanity called white people. And um, the other very noticeable characteristic of these bodies of laws is that the society that existed before this moment for the first, literally for the first three quarters of the 17th century within the colonies. Um, and, and remember that was a context wherein persons of African descent and persons of European descent on the same plantation were treated the same. And that free men of African descent and free British men were treated the same by law when they were free, had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law. Well, now with these 
new laws, that will certainly never be the same, and it never has been. So let me just give you an example of what uh, one bundle of these sorts of laws look like. There was a, a law passed that prohibited free blacks from holding public office. Uh, there were laws that made it, um, I've already mentioned these, but this was part of the package, so I'll mention it again. Laws that prohibited whites from marrying persons of African descent and members of native tribes. Um, there were uh, laws passed that required whites to be paid in goods and services, including gun and powder, um, upon completion of their term of service. And contrast that law with a law that prohibited free blacks from being in possession of a weapon or powder. Yet another law um, prohibited free people of African descent from testifying against whites. Pardon me, it prohibited uh, persons of African descent, whether free or not, from testifying against whites. So these laws asserted this whole new group of people called white people, and of course, who are white people? Who, who counted as white people? Well, we know from the language of the law that the English were considered white, um, but, but there's no clarity on who else is considered white. And in fact, um, despite the fact that many US laws turn on whether an individual is white or not, federal law has never defined who is white up and uh, through this very moment in time. Never have we defined who, who is white as a matter of federal law. And so what did that mean? That meant battles over who counts as white and who is excluded from it uh, are brought into courtrooms. And so the judiciary are the ones deciding who's white and who's not. But let's go back to this very first bundle of laws because um, even just in this first bundle, we learn quite a bit about this new group of humanity called white people. So we see that through law, this new group of laborers called white laborers is being carved out. And we see that those who are seen as white are conferred better treatment, um, have rights that are protected, and we see that those who are um, laborers of African descent those who are Africans who are enslaved and members of native tribes are um, have, have their rights, especially if they have achieved a status as free, absolutely stripped away. Remember, up until this point, they had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law. Never has that been the same. Let's look at this one law. Um, I just think it's important to, to sort of dig into how, how we know what it meant to be white when we look at just this first bundle of laws. When you look at the law that prohibited people of African descent from testifying against whites, what, what, did, what did people who now found themselves called white, what did they learn about what it means to be white just from that one law? the law that prohibited people of African descent from testifying against whites. Well, it seems pretty clear to me that those who are white are being carved up and shaped as people who can treat people of African descent how, 
whatever we like without any concern for prosecution, because certainly a person of African descent cannot testify against whites. And so the, the message then to white people is that you have power over, and that power over people of African descent is not only built in law, but the law is on your side. We see through this one prohibition of testifying that it works to, to craft the law, the law as rooted in the interests and perspectives of white people. Now, think about what persons of African descent learned that day when these laws were passed. They learned that they better be passive or submissive to this new group of people called white people or else. The message is absolutely clear. And so with the bundles of laws like these that asserted this new group of people called white people, they began to be passed in the decades after Bacon's rebellion uh, through the next quarter of the next century. So into uh, 1725 we see these bundles of laws that keep asserting uh, this group of people called white people, conferring to them better treatment, relative anyway, to persons of African descent and members of native tribes. So let's reconsider the social structure that these, um, that the assertion of this new group of people called white people through law work to, to create the new social order um, being carved out through the invention of white people through law. And so here's what we see. If, if you can visualize, again, sort of the 1%, a very small bubble at the top, a really long ladder, and the 99% in a big bubble underneath with, with incredible distance between the two. Well, that was the social order. But now, now there is a new social structure um, that has been created and, and was being created through these laws and through the assertion of this group called white people. And so you have to take that bubble of the 99% and you have to separate it because now underneath the small bubble that represents the ruling elite, the white ruling elite, right? We have a big bubble that now represents white laborers who are above persons of African descent and, and native tribes. So we see that through the invention of white people, through the assertion of white people, the 99% was divided. In addition, we see that the ruling elite didn't have to hand over a pence or the equivalent of a penny um, to accomplish this radical reorganization of colonial society. What they did was they dug out a new bottom of colonial society and tossed people of African descent and members of native tribes within this much lower bottom. And so if we think about what this history tells us about white people, um, it, it makes very clear that, that this idea called white people was built um, on the ideas of the British that they had of themselves as Christian, as freeborn, as deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied.
And again, that's a quote from that law of 1664. And I want to say that one more time because I want you, I, I want listeners to really hear those words. Whites are deserving, well, excuse me, actually, this was in reference to the English um, being, quote, deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied, end quote. And, and how far a step is it from that way of thinking to white supremacy? So let's look in just a very general way to see what we learn about this construct called white people. We learn from this history that white, white is the tool by which the 99%, which the laborers were divided. We see that white was imbued with the presumption of being superior to those seen as not white. The laws also reveal that white worked to connect European laborers to the British elite. Um, right, if there's one thing the 99% could all agree on um, was that they hated the ruling elite. But now, now we have this new group of laborers called white laborers, and they share a status now with the ruling elite. And that status is, is called whiteness. And we see from the laws that, that this new group of, of of people called whites were imbued with the presumption of being superior to those seen as not white. The other thing that we see through these laws and enactments and the assertion of white people is that patriarchal power is squarely centered among and within white men. So in 1681, when uh, we see for, the, for one of the first times in law, a reference to a group of people called white people, um, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that there was no genetic shift that took place among people of British descent and Dutch descent, Portuguese descent, that now links us in a genetic sludge that we could call white. I mean, that, that's ridiculous, right? So what this history helps to reveal to us is that whiteness, race generally, it it's not rooted in genetics. Humans are not separate. Uh, we are, there is one humanity and that whiteness and race are really a reflection of human assertion of power. It's about power. And so what I'd like to do is shift from colonial North America into um, the founding moment of the country. Um, so we're gonna jump ahead 100 years. So this idea called white people and, and um, white people being constructed and shaped as superior to those seen as not white had uh, over 100 years to, to grow, to advance in the minds and hearts of people, to become embedded in institutions and, and social structures. Uh, before, uh, by the time of the American Revolution, uh, the Declaration of Independence, the American Revolution, the Constitution, and we have in uh, 1689 and 1690, the very first Congress of this United States of America meeting to, and, and they were assigned the task, of course, of having to craft all the laws of this brand new nation. 
And so included in those laws were laws concerning immigration and naturalization. So immigration concerns the legal process one must follow uh, when one is not born in a country and seeks to become a citizen. So that's the naturalization process. Immigration um, uh, is often connected with um, that, and that concerns itself with laws regarding who can come in um, to a nation, um, and that refers to our immigration policy. So our founders um, in, in 1790, when they were crafting these laws, um, determined that in order to naturalize a U.S. citizen, one must be white. As a matter of founding law, our, our Congress, our lawmakers, preferenced white and whiteness over, over so many other elements, over the skills that a person brings, over that person's love of this country and its principles. In this one law, our founders privileged whiteness to, to so many other qualities um, and values that people have. And so it's really important for us to realize that this requirement of being white to naturalize a U.S. Um, citizen lasted more than 150 years. 150 years. And so um, it has worked to impact thousands of other laws. Um, I think also it shouldn't be lost on us that that founding law worked to create a, um, a direct equation between white and American, right? Because, and in fact, we actually preserve that um, equation, white equals American. We, we preserve it linguistically because um, I, e even if my family arrived last week and we speak um, decent English, let's say, um, I would simply be referred to as an American. But many people are referred to as sort of contingent Americans, right? African American, Asian American, Native American, Latinx American. And so we have, um, even in our linguistic practices, ways of preserving the white equals American equation that this founding law concerning naturalization worked to construct. And so uh, before I shift into meanings for the workplace today, uh, what this law means for us, um, I want to highlight some ways in which this naturalization law and its requirement of being white to naturalize uh, worked uh, to create. So naturalization law, that founding naturalization law, was used as evidence submitted to the United States Supreme Court in the um, 1857 case Dred Scott v. Sanford, where Dred Scott, a, a man of African descent, was determined not to be a citizen of the United States, even though he was born here. <laughs> I mean, it's really fairly outrageous. However, See how, think about how the naturalization law counted as evidence here. Um, it was used to, to establish that our founders never intended anyone who's not white 
to be a citizen of this country. And it, and it functioned in support of that thinking in the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision. Furthermore, we see countless laws passed um, that, that grew out of this, the naturalization law and again, that preference for white people in the United States. We see that um, alien land laws were passed out west that blocked um, people of Chinese descent and then just Asian people generally from being able to purchase land. And then a year later, it was they were prohibited from renting land. Uh, and, and in these ways, if you think about it, it's sort of easier to see the harm that was inflicted upon persons of Asian descent because of those laws. But let's not lose the flip side of that coin, which is how white people were advantaged. Because what happens when we make more land available? It, it becomes more affordable. The sort of supply and demand dynamics are at play. Um, and those who are able to purchase land um, can do so under more favorable conditions. And so we see white people being conferred advantages at the same time that those seen as not white are um, experiencing by law harm after harm. I also want to raise one other thing um, really quickly. Do you remember that law that we talked about that prohibited people of African descent from testifying against white people? That emerged in colonial um, Virginia following Bacon's Rebellion. But that law, that law that prohibited people of African descent from testifying against white people, I can, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that that particular law worked for its purposes. And the reason I can tell you that with a significant degree of confidence is because we see that law throughout US history. For example, after uh, the discovery of gold in 1848 out west um, and the need for cheap labor um, and disposable labor, mind you, to build the most dangerous sections of the Transcontinental Railroad, um, Chinese men were brought in to do this work. And so in regions out west where they were um, significant populations, what do we see? We see that that people of Chinese descent were prohibited from testifying against white people. Following the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, when Mexico was virtually chopped in half and the United States gained land from Texas to California, um, in those areas where we had large numbers of people of Mexican descent, once they now became territories, um, we see that laws were passed that made it illegal for Mexicans to testify against whites. So that law is worth paying particular attention to um, because how did it function? And, and I think it, it should not be lost on us that that law functioned um, to ensure that certain non-white groups would remain cheap and dependent labor, right? Because it put them in a position of incredible vulnerability relative to white people. And it also... Um, continued to deepen and advance um, white supremacy that was certainly the basis for these laws all the way back in the colonial period when white people were first invented and asserted. Um, and, and really these laws just become evidence that that persists. So, so let's take this um, 
information, this history about the invention of white people, it, it makes it absolutely clear that this group of humanity called white people only exist as such to divide and dominate. And I don't know about you, but as someone who has white clicked on my birth certificate, um, having this as a component of my identity has been, and learning this information through my research has been, you know, challenging to say the least. So, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to have this part of my identity that can be, that is nothing other than division and domination? Um, and, and so that's worth thinking about and feeling through um, absolutely. And, and that needs to be done and it needs to, can, it cannot be done in this podcast. It's something that people have to just sit with um, and really reflect about. Um, but what I would like to do before we conclude is just to, to share ways that I think this information um, is, is vital to, to businesses, to institutions. Um, and so let me suggest um, some of the ways that I think it, it is particularly useful. Um, it, it completely reorients our thinking. It, and and I, I am particularly, um, I, I find it particularly useful for those uh, workplaces, those institutions that are still having a debate and, and think it is in any way a legitimate debate about whether this thing called white privilege exists. Anyone who can pose that question reveals absolute incredible ignorance. And, and, what, and I don't mean that that means people are stupid at all. I mean ignorance in its most base meaning, which is uninformed, ignorant of historical information. So when we know this history, um, it, it's ridiculous to pose that question because we, we know from this history that advantages were baked in as a matter of founding law and then reasserted through, through various other laws, much less practices, um, throughout US history. And so it, it doesn't make any sense to ask, whether there is such a thing as white privilege. What now becomes important is that we say, wow, how is institutionalized everyday white privilege or, or, or the presumption of the superiority of white people, how is that playing a role in my workplace, in this institution that I work for? Because you, you can't really get a good understanding of this history and not see that every institution um, grown out of this brand new republic called the United States of America, from its, from its essential components was imbued with the presumption of white superiority. It's in all of our institutions. It's, it's a, a component of every structure grown out of the United States of America. And so when we understand that, our starting point changes. 
we don't begin with questions about is white is there such a thing as white privilege it becomes how is the presumption of the superiority of white people playing a role in our workplace how is it impacting how we relate with each other how is it shaping um, who we see as customers how is it shaping those we see as potential customers how is it shaping our boardroom how's it shaping um, our communities um, outside of our workplace and so it is it, to, to even imagine that this thing called whiteness and the presumption of the superiority of white people to, to think that it could not be um, in all of these places is truly revealing um, how little we understand US history. And so let me let me conclude by, by addressing that part because when I, when I talk to audiences, people are often really angry um, that we are just now learning this information. And so um, I get it. I understand that anger. Um, I, I think it would be wrong headed to think that we are that there's some, person controlling us puppets in terms of what um, information we're being given. Um, I think it's more complex than that. I think that um, we are definitely given very poor versions of colonial history in our schools. Even the US history books, uh, we have been able to reveal that uh, many of the ways in which different social phenomenon are described. Um, occasionally, it is um, just factually wrong, but that's more the exception than the rule. The rule is more like this, and I, I don't know how else to really describe it um, than to use this example, so if you'll bear with me. I think that the version of history that we learn is, is, can be likened to this scenario. So uh, let's say my, it's a Friday night and I ask my daughter, um, hey, it's Friday night, you know, what, do you, what are you doing this evening? And she tells me, well, I'm gonna go over to my best friend Ari's house and we're gonna you know, just hang out with some friends. That is the version of history that most of us learn. Let me fill you in on the rest. So what's happening is about 200 friends are coming over and a bunch of kegs and some cocaine and various pharmaceuticals. So my daughter didn't lie to me, right? That is not, um, it, it was not a lie, but it is certainly not the truth. And, and that to me captures the vast majority of the history that we are taught in our schools. It, it's not that it, some of it is factually incorrect, so I don't want to miss that, but that's really the exception. The vast majority of the information we're given is just so far from the truth. Um, and so we, we have got to, as a country, as a people who seek to be informed, um, for especially as we are becoming more global with every breath we take, um, we need to understand how whiteness is harming all of us um, it, how it is diminishing the humanity of white people and harming the humanity 
of everyone we've excluded from it. I hope you have found this helpful. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Dr. Badalore, for that very enlightening podcast. I know I definitely found it helpful, and I know I learned a lot of things that I didn't know and that we as Americans just don't know. Um, if you would like to learn more about the about the concept of whiteness, please visit uh, jbadalora.com for more information and for more resources. Um, I want to, again, thank Dr. Badalora and thank you for joining us for today's podcast. Thank you, Benjamin. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the local arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.